Let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. And we'll be looking at this section of Scripture which speaks of faith without works is dead. Or useless is another word that he uses as well. But faith without works is dead. And we'll be reading verses 14 to verse 26. James chapter 2, verse 14. This is the Word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, does, uh, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his own son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the Word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that as we, as your people, study your Word together, that you would minister to us by your Spirit these beautiful words, these words that call your church to righteous action. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I wonder what particular circumstance is James dealing with in these churches? Why is he addressing the situation that he is? Has the church become so focused on, well, I'm saved by faith alone, that it's forgotten that faith is never alone, is it? It is always accompanied by the work of the saints. Or should we say faith is the root and works are the fruit? It's a really easy way to look at that. Obviously, a tree without roots is dead, and thus there is no fruit. 
But here he's speaking about faith, yes, but he's speaking clearly that in a believer's life, there will always be work. It's the same word. It's used different ways. Ergon or ero, it's ergon. It just means deed or works. Same word is used here by James in the Greek. And it, it could be that one of the circumstances that has creeped into the church among some, not all, would be, would be this understanding of cheap grace. Cheap grace. Maybe you've heard that phrase, cheap grace. There was a pastor in Germany during, before World War II and during World War II. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship. And he spoke of cheap grace in the German church. It was more like a plague, an infection that had infected the souls of the entire German church. To be German was to be Christian. To be German was to sing the Christmas carols. But there was no necessity of commitment to Christ. It was culture. It was tradition. And this is what he said about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. So you're not calling for transformation. That was his critique of the German clergy a clergy that many had conformed to the Nazism itself during the 1930s. He goes on to write baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Definition, it's not grace, and it's not good news. church had lost its way. It was no longer a, a mouthpiece that could be used in the culture in the rise of Nazism. And the church was just full of cheap grace. And we know that there are consequences to cheap grace, isn't there? Cheap grace kills churches because it expects nothing of the body of Christ. But when you open the Bible, what do you see? Does God demand something of you? He wants all of you, your entire being, to be committed to Him and to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. There is no cheap grace in Scripture. It's costly. It costs God His only begotten Son in order to make you a daughter, in order to make you a son. That's costly grace. It changes you. It transforms you. It makes you into a different man and different woman. Yes, there is that bent of sin, original sin existing in you. But it's costly grace, isn't it? I believe James is speaking here of the Christian life is costly grace. But this perennial problem of cheap grace, of faith without works, is seen in his questions, isn't it? Right from the very beginning, in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What good is it? 
And there's, in fact, there's two questions, isn't there? There's two questions being asked. What, what good, is it, good is it to have faith without works? It's good to pause there. What good is it to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed the, the will of His heavenly Father perfectly? What good is it to have faith without works? And the next question, follow-up, is can it save him? A Christianity that has faith without works, can it save him? It's good just to stop there. I do believe it's a rhetorical question because the context is very clear. No. No. That's the context, isn't it? It's no, because that kind of faith is dead. It's a sarcophagus. It's where you put a body to rot, not for a life to be transformed. It's dead. It's useless. That's the answer. As we see in verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. You know, James had said previously in chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the Word, so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He's already been talking like this, hasn't he? That we need to be doers of the Word and not simply hearers of the Word. James is adamant that the the covenant community of believers would be doers of the Word. So faith without works obviously it's dead. It's dead. Well, the critic's response, verse 18, he is, well, he's he's ready for the critic's response in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. We don't know who these someones are. This might be just a hypothetical different parties that are battling within the church. We are uncertain. But he says, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. And I do believe that second part is James speaking. that, That part, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I will demonstrate my faith as genuine or authentic or real. Real is probably better. Genuine is probably better than the word authentic, which has been misused and transformed in our common usage. Now, this kind of language, of course, puts us Protestants a little bit uneasy when we hear James making his argument, especially when he says, you're not saved by faith alone later on in the text. And so you're feeling a little bit... Is this very Protestant? Is there a reason why James, that James was called the epistle of straw by none other than Martin Luther on various occasions? And that has been repeated for the last 450 years, this idea of the epistle of straw. But I do not believe James and the apostle Paul are in disagreement at all. James is dealing with a different pastoral situation. He's dealing with a very different pastoral situation than the Apostle Paul was dealing with. Now, let's go to that 
quote that he, he makes about demons, and I think it's very important that he makes it. It's an illustration to prove his point. It's an illustration to prove his point or the assertion he has just made, which is this. I will show you my faith by what I do. Context, you go right to verse 19. You believe that there is one God good. That's the Shema, right? There is one God excellent. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Everybody that he's writing to would have been primarily Jewish with those who were part God-fearers at one time, Gentiles, but they would have been very well versed in Torah, and that is an obvious, obvious declaration of belief. There is one God. But then he says, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is talking about the damned faith of demons. It's a damnable faith, isn't it? It clearly is the word pistos. It's faith. It says believe, but it's the same word for faith in the Greek. No difference. But what kind of faith do they have? Well, there are three parts to faith, aren't there? Number one, first you must have a knowledge of what you have faith in. Second, you must assent to the truth of that knowledge, right? And third, you must trust in that truth and live according to it. Those are the three parts, the three parts of trust. But demons have what? They have the first part, don't they? They have a very good knowledge of God's Word. They know what it says. Would they assent to the truthfulness of God's Word? Well, they know it's true. They know there is but one God. They know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They can assent to all of that. But the problem is they don't trust, do they? They don't trust in the living God. That's the damnation, isn't it? That's the foolishness. And he's using this extreme illustration to say to the church, and by the way, some of you are in the same boat as the demons. Oh, oh, that stings. The stove is hot. Some of you are just like the demons. You have knowledge. You've grown up in the church. You've grown up with these truths. You've been catechized. Secondly, you assent to the truth, the truth claims of, of what God has said in this world. You say, yes, these are true, but it's the third part. Do you trust Him? Is there roots? Do you have roots in Christ? And are you producing from those deep roots that are in Christ, and we come to that by faith in Him, are they producing fruit? For the demons, we know it's not fruit, it's fight. They are at war against God's kingdom. They are at war against God's church. They are at war against you, aren't they? And that's why he says in verse 20, you foolish man, which means there's some, there are people in the church just like the demons. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now, I want to go to Paul just briefly, just briefly, and look at the fruit of faith in obedience. The fruit of faith in obedience. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, right? We know that wondrous text. 
That's a text that you might go to, but you're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Fantastic. And this is what it says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Oh, you see, James, not by works. But see, James is not making the argument that you are saved by your works. He's not making the argument that your works, your righteous works, are meritorious. That's not his argument. But listen to what Paul says. This is a lovely passage that we often don't quote verse 10, do we? We stop here and forget to quote verse 10, which says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It appears that the wondrous grace of the Lord, of God the Father, through faith in Jesus Christ, your salvation is to prepare you for good works. So yes, if your roots are deeply established in Christ by faith, which is itself a gift, then you will produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Now, does faith save you? I ask this question because this one gets confused too. Does faith save you? No. Faith is a means or the instrument by which you come to Christ, by which you rest in Christ for your complete and full righteousness and absolute atoning sacrifice it means all your sins are been paid for. It's not faith. Faith is the means, and we know that it itself is a gift of God so that none of us might do what? Boast, right? So that none of us would boast. And Paul writes in the epistle of Galatians, and we know that is about what? By faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is what he says in chapter 5. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has no value. The one thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, if you look at the context of Galatians, you'll find, and I think it's verse 10, that he's speaking about love, which is the summary of the second table, the love of your neighbor, the second table of the moral law or the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Paul is simply saying there, that it appears that faith and works go together too. Maybe they're not such in disagreement after all. These two apostles ministering to two separate churches and talking about faith. But faith, as we see, and works. Now, James makes, as he's arguing, going back to the text in James chapter 2, verse 20, talking about you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Well, I will show you two wonderful examples, Father Abraham and righteous Rahab, right? Those are the two examples that he uses when he go to verses 21 through verse 26. Those are the two examples of what he's trying to argue to demonstrate his position. So looking at these examples of living faith, another way to say it maybe is... Um, the Christian life is to be a lively faith, right? It's a lively faith. It's active. Yes, you, are, you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This itself is a gift. You have believed that in His 
In his person and in his sacrifice, you have complete redemption, the forgiveness of sins and perfect righteousness and an inheritance without end. Wonderful. But it's lively, isn't it? Because that wondrous grace produces what in you? Good work. You, 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 really, if you listen to the gospel, this wondrous good news, you want to do something, don't you? You don't want to sit in your pews. You don't want to warm a stool. You want to be engaged. You want to be teaching your children about the wondrous gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to be living according to his tenets so that you would have a marriage of faithfulness, fidelity, that you would honor your mother and father because look how God has honored you by sending his son. It's, it's in you. It bubbles up inside this lively faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And I believe that is what the focus far more of James is. But let's look at the example of Father Abraham. Now, there's two Old Testament texts that are quoted here. The first is about is Genesis 15, 6, and the second is Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. There's quite a distance between these two texts. We don't know exactly the year in, 15, in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, when he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, right? He believed Yahweh, and God credited that or declared Abraham righteous by faith, right? By faith. We don't know when that is, but the illustration he uses particularly here is the one of the sacrifice of Isaac, right? That's where he goes, chapter 22. Isaac might be 13 years old. Let's say he gets the promise at 75. You're looking at possibly 37 years later, just giving a context, about 37 years later, maybe we can shave off a few years, 35 years later, 33 years later, we have God give Abraham the greatest test of his entire life. And you remember the scene, he's cutting the wood himself, he's, he's doing everything himself. And he takes Isaac with him up to what we know today as Jerusalem. So it would have been quite a journey with Isaac with a knife. Of course, he bounds his son, makes an altar, bounds his son, and is about ready to plunge that knife into his son in obedience to what God has declared that he do. And of course, God says, stop. Right? And then we have the ram and the thickets there. But this is what God says to Abraham. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will make possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed. Faith and obedience, faith in action. Now, we know that Abraham is part of the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and this is what it says about Abraham and this moment in his life. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, 
It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Is that faith? Trusting God with the promised seed that He promised to you at the age of 75, and here it is, and God says, now you must slay that promised seed. And the entire time, I wonder if He was talking to God all the way to Jerusalem, begging God to stop, not that He would not have to do this. We don't know. But He gets there, and He's ready in the slow motion of Genesis in Hebrew verbs, it's so many Hebrew verbs, it's like slow motion, up with the, with the knife, ready to plunge down, and God says, stop. Abraham, we hear in Hebrews, believed God could resurrect the dead. That's faith, isn't it? That is faith beyond any wildest imagination at that moment, and yet Abraham believed that. But that faith was seen in what? Action. It was seen in action, wasn't it? You can't separate the faith of Abraham in the promises of the living God and his actions. He wasn't a perfect man. He was not sinless, but he was a man that trusted God and trusted in his promises, and was willing to go to extremes unthinkable in his obedience to the God who had promised him to bless all the nations through this one son. That's the faith he's speaking of. Clearly, we know Abraham was not declared righteous because he was a perfect man, but by faith in God. But it was seen in his obedience. Just like when you obey. I see, I know so many of the saints here. You're living lives of obedience. Why? Because you love Jesus. Because you trust him. Because you want to please him. Because you've already made, been declared righteous. You have been made righteous. And you want to live righteously, don't you? If you have been made righteous, you want to live righteously. Again, it's the fruit of faith. Not the, works does not merit anything before God. And of course, there's the other example of Rahab. And we're talking the opposite ends of the of the political spectrum, the opposite, I mean, an enemy of Israel, right? The, she's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. She's the upper, she's the complete opposite, and yet what do we learn about her? She hides the spies, and this is what she says. This is a wonderful place of faith. She says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melted in fear because of you. Is that an odd statement of faith? I know that the Lord has given you this land. Statement of faith number one. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea 
for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Sounds like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In a moment where every believe, believed in regional deities. Even cities would have their own deities. Here she's saying, he's the God of all things. Rahab. And of course, who also is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Well, it's good old Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies was not killed with those who were disobedient. She too is in the hall of faith. She true trusted in the living God, and she acted, didn't she? Faith is active. You see that in Rahab's life? You see that in Abraham's life? You couldn't ask for two people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, still trusting in the God of heaven and earth, the God who had redeemed Israel, the God who was giving the land of Canaan, the God who sent His only begotten Son into the world, the God who died for sinners upon a cross. And how did Christ get to the cross? Why did He go to the cross? Well, first, He wanted to obey His heavenly Father, didn't He? And He wanted to redeem you and me, a people for Himself, that we might praise Him and delight in Him and obey Him. Right? Because for you and I who have been saved from such a horrible end, eternal death, death without end, Christ took upon Himself on the cross in order to redeem you from that eternal death and give you eternal life that should change you, shouldn't you? It, it obviously bubbles up within us a, a desire, a hunger to obey. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And when you've come face to face with Jesus, you've come face to face to the one who is your righteousness, the lover of your soul the one who gave his life and rose from the dead, the one who still intercedes for you in heaven because he has ascended, and the one who is coming back one day, and all things will be made new. I don't know about you. He's coming soon. And don't you want to be ready for his return? Don't you want to be ready for his return? How are you and I to be ready for his return? Lively faith. Living for Jesus' glory until He comes again. And that should be the delight of every single soul that has been redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit that has applied the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to our hearts. And our hearts now can say, Abba, Father, and we can cry out, Oh, Lord, how can we serve not in order to merit anything, but because we delight in you. Because all merit, all sufficiency is in Christ. 
our Redeemer, our Lord, our friend. Oh, Father, bless your people as they go out. May the root of their faith that is deepened in Christ produce good fruit for your glory and for others' good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.